Welcome back to Mind on the Game, a Vent sports podcast series hosted by me, Freddie Cocker. It's been a while since I've done one of these. It's great to be back. Each pod, I check in with men and women from across the sporting landscape. We discuss their sporting journeys, their mental health, and how they keep their mind on the game. This episode of Mind on the Game is with someone who I've known for quite a long time and who's indulged me on many a gig together in London. His name is Ben Bloomfield. Ben was at university with my best mate and friend of the pod, James Lamb. That's how we met. In this episode, we discuss Ben's football journey, the brief five minutes of fame his university halls team experienced when they were sponsored by Pornhub, camaraderie and how football allowed him to thrive and survive in school. We also discuss the work burnout he experienced in 2019, why he took the plunge to leave his job during a global pandemic, how he went about resetting his life and what he learned along the way now he's come out the other side. So this is how Ben Bloomfield keeps his mind on the game. Ben Bloomfield, welcome to Mind on the Game, mate. Thank you so much for coming round, doing the podcast with me. It's taken a long time to get here, hasn't it? <laughs> a disturbingly long time. Freddie, it's been a long time overdue. It's a long time overdue. Very pleased to be here. Thank you for having me. My pleasure, mate. My pleasure. It's been a while since I've done a Mind on the Game episode as well. So I'm very pleased that you can break the duck. <laughs> how are you, mate? You good? Yeah, I'm not so bad, mate. Thank you. Cycled over here, as as you know, and I guess that's a nice intro to a sporting episode. Mm-hmm. Fitting. Fitting, indeed, yes. It felt nice. It felt nice to get out in the fresh air and get a bit of exercise. It's nice and fresh, though, isn't it? It's not it's too today. bad. It's, it's not too it's not bad. It's cold. It's lovely and sunny. Yeah, it's nice. Excellent. Well, without further ado, mate, shall we crack on with the show? Let's get going. Let's start mine on the game with your football journey, mate. So I ask every guest mm-hmm. to tell me this question first. How did you discover football? Who took you to your first kickabout, your first match? And how did you fall in love with the beautiful game? So I've never come from a particularly footballing family. There's talk of distant relatives playing for dodgy little non-league teams. But uh, my dad was never so much into it. So I guess predominantly at school, in the playground, picking it up there as a sort of young kid of six, seven. Just loved whacking the ball around. Started out as a keeper, actually. Wow, okay. Yeah, yeah. Pretty useless at it, so that didn't last long. <laughs> Normally, people are useless, and then they go in goal, not the other yeah. way around. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, I guess it was probably, like I say, at school that I really started picking it up, getting interested in it, and then getting these little foam or actual footballs and breaking everything in the house and really winding my mum up. <laughs> and my dad actually had a brief stint working for Capital One, who were sponsors of Forest for a while. So oh, while he wasn't usually into football, right. he was able to get free tickets. And so he took me along to a few matches. And, and he's no like no football, not a fan, not a player. Not really. Not I think okay. he, funnily enough, ironically got stuck in goal as a kid because he <laughs> wasn't just good at football. And yeah. But uh, no, he's from Newcastle. And I think if he was a football man, I'd be a Newcastle fan. Right. But he enjoys the game. Yeah, I think he really got into it through me. But and I think for balance, he actually took me to a Notts County game as well. Um, Interesting. And we ended up supporting the right team for us. There uh, we go. So. <laughs> you made the right call. So yes. You didn't join a team until you were 12, which was Beast and Centurions. And a few of your primary school mates played in that yep. that didn't go to your secondary school. So similar to how me and friend of the pod, James Lamb, 
stayed in touch because we played in the same cricket team mm-hmm. but went to different schools. Was that really good for you in keeping touch with those mates? Oh, it was excellent. I think I'd played for the school team. I'm in my late years of primary school, but never made that push to join a, a sort of organised team on a Sunday league. Beast and Centurions, shout out to the Monty Oranges, as you <laughs> mentioned. There'll be a few, a few, hopefully a few ex-players. Oh, this. yes. So, yeah, I think one of the drivers was my mates played for it the team and we were going to different secondary schools and it really was a great way to help keep in touch with them we're still friends today as a result of that I think it helped keep us close-knit um, and added on to that you know Saturday mornings down the park just whacking the ball into the goal from 25-30 yards with a two you joined a different team in sixth form before you went to university and it's fair to say that this didn't go the way you wanted and you said to me you were pretty terrible by your account Despite I think that, the, the team perhaps, the team was terrible. Okay, let me let me scratch that off my notes. Let me scratch that off my notes. So you're not you're not, <laughs> I was you're not dogged in. Terrible. <laughs> <laughs> what did you learn through that period then, when the team wasn't doing so well? It was interesting. I think partly we'd moved up a few divisions, and that was something that the team perhaps wasn't quite equipped for. I'd also gone from being captain and one of the sort of standouts at the previous team, who also weren't particularly good, but. There you go. To being in a team where there were a few better players, but we just still weren't good enough for the league. And so it was interesting making that move. But I'm glad I did it because I I went with my mates. And to me, I love football and I can be involved with it anytime, really. But one of the most important things about it is that sort of social time with my friends. I think that's what football is is brilliant for. It really helps keep that close-knit together. So, you know, I'm glad I made the change. My old team went on and won a few things that we never did when I was there. Um, (laughs) So perhaps no the, FOMO there or FOMO? No FOMO, slight FOMO, okay. slight FOMO. You always want to win, right? At the end of the day, but my main drive, as I said, isn't necessarily the competition. You want to go out and win, but equally, football's about having fun for me. That's mm. time with my friends. Let's go to university now. You studied at Kent University. That's how you met James. You trialed for the uni team, but you didn't manage to break in. However, you ended up playing for your uni halls team instead. Looking back. Do you still feel a bit of regret that you weren't able to get into the uni team or are you almost glad you didn't succeed and wonder what could have been? Yeah, I think football at university was a bit of an eye-opener for me. It really helped me understand, possibly more than I had done at secondary school and sixth form, what my drivers for playing football were. I think it sort of opened my eyes to how much do I really love playing 11 aside? What am I really playing football for? Is it status, as a lot of uni yes, football exactly, teams exactly. were? Yeah. And so, you know, maybe it would have been nice to make the uni team, but then that was very early days without much of an idea of what the football teams at uni are like. And the culture, Quite yeah, sure. Exactly, the culture, and yeah. This is um, 2012, 2013, so probably laddie culture would have yeah, been as its yeah. peak then, I would untamed. imagine. Yeah, exactly, yeah, yeah, yeah. So, you know, it's never easy, I guess, to hear as an athlete that you haven't made the cut, but equally... Looking back on it, I'm very glad I ended up where I did in the college team Mm. rather than in the uni team. I think the travelling looked a bit of a ball ache as well, if I'm honest, to games. And and yeah, I think where I landed in the college team just had such a nicer group of individuals Mm. to to sort of be around and socialise with. Most uni teams don't get much media spotlight, let alone Hall's teams. Mm. Your team managed to do that with a very infamous sponsorship of a certain sexual company i shall say and there was a lot of i think misinformation maybe at the time which was swelling around can you explain yeah maybe fake news can you explain that story for the listeners sure so this is the mighty rover raiders who 
went worldwide in obscure. It was worldwide at one point. <laughs> Sponsored by a, a company beginning with P and ending with Hub. Right. Um, Pornhub for the listeners indeed. who don't know. Yes, Freddie. So what happened there, we were getting close to the start of the season. We were struggling to find a new sponsor. I think we'd ditched the student bar that was propping us up last season. I won't name them, but quite handy on giving drinks to underage people. Right. Possibly not a good image for us. Right. Arguably neither as a porn company. Either way. So, close to the start of the season. As a bit of a laugh, the captain emails Pornhub. Sort of offhand, you know, didn't expect it to go anywhere. How about sponsoring our university team? And to clarify, like you said, sort of intermediate uh, college team, effectively. Right. And to our surprise, they emailed back and said, yes. And we ended up having it on the kits for all of, I say one game, we played in it one game, we were made to wear it inside out for that one game. So no way! To display the logo. Gillingham, the only football league team in the entirety of the county of Kent, used the University of Kent's facilities for their under eights academy training, who would often turn up at the end of our fixture on a Wednesday. And the <coughs> university decided it wasn't a good look. <laughs> To have a Pornhub sponsored shirt when all the mums and dads are arriving with their eight-year-old children and they're going possibly, mommy, daddy, what, what's Pornhub? <laughs> so, yes. They would know. They would know. They it, would know. It lasted all of one game, but uh, I mean, it was a fantastic time. What a kit to have for a, a short amount of time. I mean, that's time. probably a vintage item now. Have you got uh, that still? I wish I had it oh. still. I believe one of them went up on eBay for quite a bit of money. I think that got stopped by the university as well. Some people I reckon still have theirs. But the university made a deal with us that they'd find us a new sponsor <laughs> on the condition that, in their words, the kits would be destroyed. Right. So, and did they find you a new sponsor? I, they did. It right. was called Beautiful Bodies. Was it? Hilarious. <laughs> it was actually a car, <laughs> car garage. You couldn't write that. <laughs> but it's perfect. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> and oh, uh, yeah, mercy. so uh, unfortunately, I was one of the ones that was good uh, had it in my kit to be destroyed. That's, uh, that's top quality banter. It hides, as, as, it's great As banter. Richard Keyes would say. Yeah. In your final year of Kent, mate, you played in the Kent Amateur Football Leagues in a team called Unathletico Madrid. Mm. I can't say I haven't heard that name before, nope. but you know. How did Atletico and unoriginal. Well, exactly. <laughs> how did playing in that team positively benefit your mental health whilst you were balancing exams and final year dissertations? Yeah, again, I was sort of on that journey throughout university in terms of my own football experience, but you know, it really helps you understand what drives you as a person in many other ways. And I was starting to fall out of love with the, the college team I was playing with. It, it sort of, I'd been to Edinburgh working for a year and come back to uni. And a lot of my mates who were in their final years when I was in Edinburgh had then moved on. And it wasn't the same team that I left, essentially. Mm. There had been a slight shift in culture and I kind of realised it, it wasn't the sort of environment I loved being in mm. anymore. Whereas this other team, far more laid back, very much similar personalities to myself. I mean, it was very nice to have that type of football where I just felt much more comfortable, confident being around people who just sort of on the same vibe as me. And that's when I can truly express myself in football and feel best playing it. When that confidence is there, you know, it really drives you on. And, and yeah, going out and having that release and that sort of enjoyment, again, playing 11-a-side football was brilliant for sort of mental health and distracting from the pressures of your final year. Thankfully, no dissertation for me because I'm pretty useless with words but yeah a lot of exams and a lot of studying so it was great to have that release every mm. now and again and sort of yeah really helped reignite a passion for playing i'd kind of lost it up in edinburgh a little bit we'll, go, we'll come to we'll edinburgh come to in that. a bit i ask this question to every guest at some point on this episode mate so when you were playing mm. at any point what mental tools or techniques did you use to keep your mind on the game 
Yeah, it's in many ways hard to describe. Sometimes you can really not be feeling it before a game. You're possibly not in the right headspace. And then sometimes you get out on the pitch and everything just clicks. It's tricky because you've, yeah, you've got to isolate. You're going to play football now and you've got to be focused on that from possibly other things that are weighing on your mind. Or, But I think really it's sort of, even if you're not in the particularly best headspace before a game, you, you have to sort of drive yourself to be, okay, I'm going to go out there I'm going to enjoy this and just have a release and I'm going to forget about everything else. And that's that's where football is going to be great for me. So it, it, it's, it's hard to describe quite how, but it's it's just, I, I guess it's innate within you after so many years of playing. It's just you muscle memory. Yeah, and yeah. it's just, there you are. You talked about that release there. And one positive thing you wanted to talk about was a varsity final you played in at Kent, mate, which meant a lot to you in your mental health. So can you tell the listeners about that and why it meant a lot to you? Yeah, uh, so this was in the year I'd come back and I wasn't enjoying being with that team as much anymore. But we'd made it through to the varsity final. No, wait, this was in second year. Oh, okay. (laughs) This was in second year. But yeah, even then I'd started to enjoy it a bit less than my first year. But it was great because we were flying as a team. As I've mentioned, my main goal is to go out and have fun and see my friends. But the buzz of that winning, sort of, we were dominant in the league and then... Each year, the winning team of the league at Christmas gets to play against Canterbury Christchurch's fourth team because our union only had three teams. Right. So we got to play them in a varsity final. And we were under the cosh a little bit. It was a bit of a higher standard than we were playing against in in the league. But it was brilliant. It was sort of friends and even family. My dad was there from (laughs) Nottingham to support me. Um, That's pressure. Yes. (laughs) Well, pressure in a way. But also, I think I quite thrive off that a little Mm. bit, having people there supporting you because... They've come to see you. You want to put on a show for them. You want to impress them. And we ended up winning the game for free. I actually had a hand at it. I, I scored, I think, possibly my only goal for Raiders. In, in, in the <laughs> what what a moment. What a moment. What a moment sort to of pick it. Final minutes of the game to draw us free all. And then in like the dying embers of the game, the guy just smashes it in from 25 yards off the post goes in and we all go and dive over at the end it's just wild and it was it was yeah ecstatic brilliant feeling even if there are people in the team that you're not so close to just that experience of winning together as a team is just fantastic and and you're all just elated and you've you've just got that buzz that was brilliant to sort of come away and win something and have that as a memory to look back Mm. on even if i wasn't necessarily enjoying being part of that football team as much anymore that was brilliant mm. and yeah something that i cherish and appreciate all the guys that were with me for mm. so. we've talked about positive moments i want to talk about maybe some setbacks or some failures or some negative moments now because after you graduated from kent like you said you moved up to edinburgh for work you joined a team there but it's fair to say you struggled to integrate into that side can you tell me about your sporting journey here and what were those challenges yeah so this is actually my sandwich year of university so i was still in that sort of university mindset and I'd moved up to Edinburgh to work for the year and it was really different when I started training with this team there were a few people sort of on the grad scheme my age and yeah it was fun playing with them but then they soon left Mm. and I was left in a team where I had zero confidence really Uh, I was playing up against big hard as nails Scottish guys week (laughs) in week out and yeah I just didn't ever feel like I fit in in many ways I was the posh sounding English kid and that was never going to go down particularly well some of them were very kind to me and you know I appreciate that they always put an arm around me after training or a game and pick me up a little bit but it was another eye-opener for me in terms of I love football I could easily play football at any time but in that format I just wasn't enjoying it at Mm. all 
which led to a vicious cycle of not enjoying it, low confidence going out, not putting in a performance that I could be proud of, and then and just ad nauseum it, repeat. It's that, yeah, it's that cycle, and you know that's not going to help when you're already, I think, viewed by some of the others as maybe a, a weaker link in the team. That hurt because I knew that wasn't sort of my true, a true reflection of myself. And there were occasions where you know you, you kind of drive a mindset and pick yourself up and show you know a fighting spirit to show that that's that's not representative of you but yeah it just wasn't wasn't enjoyable for me that was a shame because yeah that was the first time where you know I'd sort of had mixed emotions about it before football but that was the one time that I just really really wasn't enjoying it did it make you question whether you wanted to just keep playing as a hobby well I think in that format yeah in that format but that had been you know I was late to it I only joined at 12 perhaps but that had been a part of my life for eight or nine years by that point playing on a on a weekend consistently and yeah it sort of put that into perspective is this something i want to do anymore and you know questions of do i enjoy playing football or yeah yeah it was was a bit of a struggle the team you play in now in london or or did pre-covid or still do i think (laughs) post-covid whatever this situation is that we're living in the moment is Mabry Mavericks, which Indeed. is where, well, all of my mates did play. Some of them now not, and some of them a bit more flitting in and out. <laughs> what has that experience been like for you, mate? So I think after uni, I told myself, I'm not going to play 11 aside football anymore. I've had these experiences up in Scotland. I've been sort of unsure about it in at uni. And, and yeah, I sort of broke clean from it. I, I, I love playing five aside, seven aside still, but I wasn't sure I wanted to do 11 aside anymore. But again, I was coerced back in, as you say, by uh, friends of the pod, and I'm glad. I'm glad they did. Uh, it's a very different experience playing here on the Hackney Marshes in London, where I'm just a boy from Nottingham, really, and I'm used <laughs> to sort of two or three pitches of football going on at most at the same time. There's something like seventy here. Something ridiculous, it's, it's yeah. Ridiculous. But yeah, I'm glad I did because I've got to meet new people. I've made some good friends through it and solidified other friendships. And yeah, it was it was a nice way to get out and get playing again. And there, there are times when I've I've really enjoyed that sort of feeling. I'm not a morning person, but when you're out there and you've just wrapped up a win on a Sunday morning out there and it's quite crisp like today, sometimes there's just no, no beating that. Mm. We talked about your favourite game. We always talk about failure on this pod as well, mate. And there was a final with Mabley where you experienced this in a fairly big way. If you could, can you tell the listeners about that moment and how it affected your mental health in the game and then afterwards? Yeah, of course. So we'd made it to a, a final, a uh, cup final. We were playing over in, in Walthamstow, Walthamstow's FC Stadium, in fact. And yeah, I'd been asked to do a job in defensive midfield. Ordinarily, I'm sort of more playing across the defensive line. But I do quite enjoy my outings wherever they are. And it was going all right, actually. I probably wasn't as effective as a true midfielder would have been but I was, I was doing well I think and then I managed to play a really short pass from a throw in back to our left back their guy nipped in won the ball crossed it in goal and that was the end of it we weren't able to get back into the game we lost that final 1-0 and that came from my mistake and yeah it was devastating I just felt crushed after the game didn't want to look any of my teammates in the eye or speak to them again it's that was all internal for you yeah yeah for me it was really hard to take yeah i was crushed Mm. my confidence gone again and we went out for drinks afterwards and uh ended up getting 
quite drunk. Quite, <laughs> I heard the stories. Quite amusing videos of me going around as well. That helped. Not purely the alcohol, but, you know, my teammates rallying around me and they could see that I was pretty heartbroken about the situation, but they were great with me. And mm. uh, we had such a fun night in the end. Um, mm. And I'm really grateful that while it was probably the, the most disappointing moment of my time playing football, it kind of, again, went to show the important things that you sort of take for me from football was the friendships and the and the fun outside of it as well as what happens on the pitch yeah and i guess they understood that you're not going to do that deliberately it's not you running after someone and hacking them down <laughs> like or punching someone or do you know what i mean like it wasn't you just absolutely losing your shit it was a genuine mistake yeah. and anyone could have done it, I think, would probably have made it, not made it more easier, but I guess more manageable or palatable for them to understand. Exactly. Yeah. You know, it was disappointing for everyone really to, to lose the game. And, you know, I, while it was my mistake that led to the goal, were we winning the game anyway? Not necessarily. I don't know. And could it have been cut out after you lost the ball? Could someone have taken a book? Do you know what I mean? There's loads of things, yeah. But, you know, this is what you reflect on later, but at the time in your head, it's it's all entirely Mm. your fault. What did you learn from it afterwards? Yeah, great question. I think for me, it was sort of to to learn to deal with those lows as well and to remember that, yeah, everyone does make mistakes and ultimately, it's about you putting your best in. And I did that during the game. I think I had a decent game other than that. And... (laughs) Like you say, it's not something you know, I intentionally did and it hurt. So it was good to remember sort of that feeling of being hurt in the final. But yeah, I think it's sort of remembering that, you know, you can only do your best and that you're there to support your teammates. And, and so you go out, do your best, put in everything for those players. And, and that's what you can give, really. Let's reflect then on your sporting journey before we move on. How has it shaped you into the person speaking to me today? Yeah, I think especially at sort of secondary school. Football is a real great divider of people. Leveler. Leveler and divider at the same time, isn't it? Divider, but yeah, exactly. I guess being okay at football over over my life, I've never got you through in it. (laughs) And yeah, it's really sort of been a a great confidence boost at times. Survival Um, mechanism. Survival mechanism, Mm. if you like, sometimes too. Yeah, absolutely. And yeah, I guess it it keeps me fit and active as well. I'm not particularly keen on running, for example. Mm. But if it's running after a ball, brilliant. (laughs) But yeah, so I think it's sort of really helped develop me as a person through the confidence aspect it provided and the friendships I've developed for it and and all of that really has has probably brought me to where I am now. We've talked all about Ben, the footballer. Mm-hmm. I want to delve a bit deeper and talk about your own journey now, mate. So first of all, I'm sure you've heard a few of these episodes, so you'll know what question I'm about to ask. <laughs> Walk me through early life in Nottingham, teenage years, and looking back, were there any early mental health experiences you can pinpoint? Who's the Ben we meet here? So Ben growing up in Nottingham, I guess often quite a shy and awkward kid at school. I'd come through phases of I think at primary school, I was quite a show-off and quite loud. And Secondary school quickly brings you down to... Yeah, yeah, yeah. Quickly brings you down to earth. Absolutely, yeah. And, you know, I guess also I had the good fortune to grow up in quite a nice part of Nottingham. But Stone Trail away, as in London, much of the time from places that aren't, aren't such nice areas and sort of do attract a rougher crowd. And, yeah, I guess the difference between primary school and secondary school is you see a lot more of the other side of it. You see the and world pretty much, you see the world, even that? even though your school is your world and it's tiny, yeah. you you're exposed to more. Exactly, yeah. and you know I think that's 
probably something I'm quite grateful for as well. I mean, it helps round you out as a character and shape you. But so I guess secondary school was, you know, you've got your friendship group, but it's a whole new sort of set of people to manage and, and deal with. And yeah, a, a few of them could be quite difficult to deal with. And then, you know, you're going through some strange old stages of your life at that stage, pre-pubescent puberty, you know. It's, yeah, it's an interesting journey to go on. And yeah, I had sort of difficulties with friendship groups that are, are come through primary school and a lot of people i don't know acting out perhaps or mm-hmm. yeah projecting um, or projecting maybe or excluding sometimes yeah. and sometimes i felt that was because i split my world into quite a lot of aspects i'd i'd, I'd sort of had quite a few girlfriends through secondary school that was just sort of me as a person i'm, I'm just i find it hard to distance myself from that for, for whatever reason whether they were good relationships or not but i had sort of that on my plate i had going out and playing football and then i had sort of my friends from primary school and I, I guess yeah spending time apart from them going off and doing my other interests such as football quite a lot it, it sort of puts strain on on your original friendship groups mm. happy to say we're all sort of still friends now it's great but yeah so there are definitely i think at secondary school a lot of difficult moments for me the big part of your journey which you wanted to talk about and which has caused you the most mental health difficulties mate has been around work mm particularly in the last role you were in can you tell me how those difficulties began and how it began to negatively impact your yeah. mental health i think for me as has possibly come out during the football section confidence is sometimes something i, I struggle with quite a bit i think real sort of to self-diagnose imposter syndrome weighs quite heavily on me mm. uh, in what sense i guess in the work environment particularly i don't know i think perhaps i demand perfection from myself too often or I'm not quite sure, but yeah, often I don't feel up to the task. I perhaps compare myself unrealistically to other people that are far beyond me in my career. Um, or they project themselves to be like that. Not always. Some Sometimes they can do. Right. You know, the, you can get quite an environment like that at banks, but you know, I've been fortunate to work with quite good, supportive people. But yeah, I think that is definitely something I, I struggle with quite a lot. And then what really drove it was, I think... I'd sort of got a year and a half, maybe two years into this this role. I'd, I'd come through my time in Edinburgh. I was lucky to then get on the grad scheme at Lloyd's where I did about a year and a half. And then I took a, a more advanced role a bit earlier off the grad scheme. And, and, and then, yeah, it was sort of what I'd aimed for. It was, it was the dream. I was cruising. I was doing very well for myself. And then it all sort of reality bit a little bit in many mm. ways in that I guess I had quite a bit of anxiety around work a lot of the time I think this was particularly exacerbated by COVID and the lockdowns the sort of barriers the separation between my home life and work life had completely been eroded whereas before it was walk or get the tube into the office then you leave for the day and you can let it all melt away a little mm-hmm. bit as you go home you know things do stay with you but there's that degree of separation whereas living in a very small one bed flat near the city with my girlfriend we didn't have a lot of space in there for us both to be working from home 24 7 and so i think the working setup contributed to that feeling of there was no separation between work and home and i guess also while initially during the first few lockdowns we had sort of everything cooled off a bit people weren't sure what was going on work slowed down life slowed down but that quickly reversed into well, everyone's working from home all the time. Everyone's just putting in longer hours and demanding a lot more. And I guess I got so wrapped up in all of that, like I say, expecting sort of demanding perfection from myself all the time. And when things were going wrong that weren't perhaps within my control, 
Whereas before, I would have perhaps brushed them off or spoken to colleagues a lot more. I was finding that difficult to do because we weren't in an environment where you can just hop over to your manager's desk and say, look, this is difficult. Like, he, he was great, my manager, but it just wasn't as easy to have those sort of conversations that helped bring you back down and, and sort of control the situation. There wasn't an immediacy that you could do that. I could sort of let Steve off every now and again, but I, I guess possibly this is on me but i sort of found it more hard to you know it was things were going wrong quite often not of my own fault but just i think a move to home working for much of our staff had been tough and i understand but being sort of in a client facing role with clients that always demanded a loss as well the pressure was on Mm. and yeah the volume of things that were perhaps going wrong made it such that i felt i couldn't just keep sort of messaging my manager or asking him to have a quick chat and and so it, it became quickly this cycle of i'm absolutely working my hardest here i'm putting in some serious hours and i just didn't have time to switch off because also i went to bed at night thinking about all the things that were perhaps going wrong and how to solve them and like I say a lot of them were outside of my control it relied on other people sort of helping out and i think putting too much on my shoulders and so yeah it was a sort of two ways issue one Perhaps the imposter syndrome I alluded to, not thinking I'm good enough at it. And then the anxiety and pressure I I put on myself as well to to really drive myself to try to take on all the world's problems, effectively. And this led to me being in a a very bad place by the end of it. I was finding it hard to get on with everyday life, whereas, you know, normally it's the weekend, great, you can switch off and forget about work until Monday. That just wasn't happening. Things were hanging over me for the whole weekend. And yeah, that was really getting me down, really affecting my mental health. Yeah, um, you said was... you had an urge to just do nothing. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. That's not really living though, is it, mate? It's not living. And I, mean, I guess that didn't help, again, being in lockdown. And, and this was during, I guess, one of the harshest lockdowns mm. when there was nothing to do either. But yeah, I'd sort of wake up at the weekend. I'd got to sleep. But as soon as I woke back up, I was again thinking about... Uh, Everything you had to do on Monday. Yeah. going to come around on Monday. And that that's not life. Nothing's worth that, really. And... Yeah, you know, I'd go out and see friends and it would still be hanging over me. and it, That yeah. niggle in the back of your head, like yeah. when uni had a big essay to do and you're going, oh, I've really got to do that like the next two days or whatever it is. Yeah, it's not living, is it? So no, so that was tough. It was sort of the job I'd been working really hard for and got and then was pushing for a promotion in because that was always the aim without really thinking, is this actually the job I want to do? It was always just a, a focus on moving up because i guess that is something that gets projected on you by other people it's this sort of climb with the greasy pole it's alluded to but you know this drive for everyone the goal is i have to move up in my career mm. and that's something i've reflected on as well as not necessarily being what drives me the job itself has got to be right as well so um, when you were offered that promotion then mm. why didn't you take it knowing what you just said so it gave me a really interesting time i'd been working like i say towards that for a long time i think it perhaps could have been offered a bit sooner but it just didn't work that way where I was necessarily I'd seen a lot of people like I say who I considered to be doing far less and were far earlier in their careers getting the same promotions just because the roles were there but when it eventually came this was when I was in the midst of feeling at my absolute darkest towards work in this role so what date was this um so this was mid-December 20 2020 2020 yeah mid-December I guess these feelings had really started to come on. It all sort of spiraling downhill from sort of mid-October-ish, mid to late October, I'd say. And it was all just really getting to me. And then the news came that someone was moving on from a higher position and that I was effectively a shoo-in. I'd still have to 
apply and everything. You got the nods and but the winks. Basically, and yeah, yeah, yeah. you know, you got your manager. As long as you apply, you don't fuck it up. Dope. It's yours. Yeah, yeah, literally, yeah. yeah. And so, yeah, that was an interesting one because I'd already thought about making a move. I'd sort of been looking around whatever jobs there were within the company. But things were, yeah, like I say, this was when things were really sort of at their peak of being at their worst. And, you know, it gave me a lot of pause for thought, that offer, because it was, I've been working hard for two years for this. I've put myself through all of this to achieve something like this. I'm already doing the work that would be required at that level. Uh, now you'd be getting validated with and financial. And validated and yeah. you get the financial reward, of course, and the sort of, I mean, you know, there's a bit of self-pride and prestige from mm-hmm. the title you get as well, you know. It, yeah, that was tough. And I did for a while genuinely consider, oh, maybe things aren't so bad. Maybe I can stick this Remember out. you having conversation with me about it. <laughs> yeah. So, yeah, it was difficult. I spoke to my manager and sort of said, look, you know, things are pretty tough at the minute. There's just too much and there's too much of being split between asked to do the sort of real high pressure, high responsibility stuff and a lot of the sort of lower level sort of admin or client sort of servicing type stuff which is perhaps expected from the lower grades and asking to be done to be doing both at the same time and it's not really compatible i don't think because you're sort of asked to spend a lot of time on these these Mm. big projects or these really high value stuff but equally your your time's being taken up because you just got so much on your plate and i sort of had a chat with him and he sort of said yeah unfortunately that's probably how it is we're probably just under resource and you know it would be great i think this would really reward you and you deserve this promotion but for at least the short term your workload's not necessarily going to change it's going to still be shit it's going to still yeah Yeah. be exactly what you've got now because we'd need to replace you at your level where you were when you get promoted and i guess that made me also think i just hate it as it is now i've sort of worked out that it's not going to get better anytime soon. It's not soon. really yeah. going to get better. It's not actually really necessarily a job I want to pursue long term. You know, I do consider myself to be a relatively people person, but mm-hmm. equally do I want to be a client-facing person all my life where you're sort of always thrown into situations that you have to constantly be speaking to clients, and that's okay most of the time, but equally you're their punching bag. When something goes wrong, who do you speak to? Relationship manager. Even when it's nothing to do with you, it's somewhere else in the business. It's mm. fucked up. But... That's just how it is. And yeah, I had to really consider, is that what I want to be doing? Is it worth the financial reward taking this or should I do something else? Well, you decided to take the plunge and decide that it wasn't for you. Yeah. yeah. And you left that job in February 2021. Is that right? Yeah. So things had got that bad and it all came to a head just before Christmas, just before breaking up for Christmas. It was the first Christmas I haven't spent back in Nottingham covid restrictions at the time and i had to spend it in london how hard was that that was difficult that was tough you know i was really looking forward to that break of going home and i think that would have helped separate things a bit you know it's silly really when everything's online that i do and work at that stage yet just that physical distancing of being somewhere else in the country at that time i think would have helped a lot and then yeah seeing family and having that normality that came with sort of the christmas period i say normality christmas is never a normal (laughs) time but you know, just that sort of familiarity, perhaps, of you go home for Christmas and I'd be at the pub on Christmas Eve with my mates. It was going to really sort of help. I think I'd been looking forward to that as a good break for a while and that was all taken away from me. So that was tough. That was really tough. And during that Christmas break, I spent a lot of time thinking. I had sort of 10 days off work or so. And I came to the conclusion that I was just going to quit. I handed my notice in on, I think it was the 4th of January, my first day back. 
Happy New Year to my manager. <laughs> With nothing lined up as well. Nothing lined up, no. I Which is brave. Some vague ideas of what I might want to do uh, instead. But I think, if I'm honest, nothing particularly concrete. And yeah, I just took the plunge and and decided that what was best for me at that time, for my mental health, was to just walk away from it. Which, you know, is, is a bit scary. And perhaps, you know, a lot of people would have looked at that decision for middle of a pandemic. A lot of issues with the economy and employment. And you're in a very sort of, you call it a comfortable job. I was entirely uncomfortable in it. But, you know, it was very well paying and... I stable. Guess, stable, yeah. if you like. And... Stressful but stable. Yeah, yeah I, I think as I alluded to earlier, was driving myself, demanding myself so much more than I think external things were. Realistically, had I dropped the ball on a lot of things and taken my foot off the pedal, it, would it have been that bad? No, but in my head, if I didn't put the effort I was putting into it, it would have all fallen apart and been terrible. But yeah, so I took that plunge. Which how did it, that go? Yeah, it was an interesting one. Unemployment's never. Um, Unemployment was it's the, never. S- never the easiest thing to no no i know from from experience i'd never been in that position before really because you know i've worked hard so i I don't want to say too much that i was quite fortunate or lucky i I have worked very hard for everything i've got in my career but equally i think you know it was not the hardest ride to do the bit in edinburgh to get off of the grad scheme to then move into the so yeah it'd been a bit of a, a relatively easy ride to sort of climb the corporate ladder to that point Versus then my first time out of university where I'd been unemployed and didn't have, well, like I say, I had vague ideas of what I might want to do around something in data science, perhaps. I sort of go back to my roots of my economics degree, the sort of statistics part of that. But yeah, it was it was interesting. The first month I told myself, you know what, don't even think about other careers or perhaps where you want to go. Just chill, just reset, just take that time and enjoy it. And yeah, I'd, I'd spent a lot of time just laying around, playing Xbox, <laughs> chilling. Um, binge any TV shows? Binging TV. I can't remember any specifics of that time, but I'm, I'm pretty sure I did. <laughs> and yeah, so for that first month, it was kind of just forget about it or just chill out. How long did that last? A uh, couple of weeks. <laughs> yeah, it normally does. Yeah, and then you're like, oh, what am I doing? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and the paycheck ain't coming in at the yeah, end of the month. Yeah. So no, after that, it was kind of, right, now I've really got to figure out what I'm doing and we moved out of London because I wasn't earning anymore it wasn't fair to ask my girlfriend to prop up the rent so we moved in with her parents and again that was sort of a you know it was I was grateful to them I really get on with them but that helps it, yes <laughs> I think it puts a lot of strain on, on everyone really yeah. when you're thrust into that situation and yeah the month started to go on and I had a few sort of moments where I was like what have I done here I was in this great job yes I didn't enjoy it but you know, it was really well paying and I'm perhaps facing things that are good pay, but just not what it was. I think that's one of the difficulties of going into a role like that. It then forms your expectations, perhaps, for the rest of your life. I was comfortable dropping salary-wise if it was something I enjoyed, because that's something I sort of went into faced head-on. Really, I've got to put myself and my health over my wealth. So yeah, I sort of had moments where I was really sort of, what have I done, beating myself up for it. I started applying for jobs made it a little way into to some of them and was finding that the ones i was making progress with were ones that were actually quite similar to the old one and again i was sort of thinking what am i doing here i'm chasing jobs that pay well again when the whole point of this has been to do something different and something that 
is going to be better for myself and my mental health. So yeah, that sort of stretched on a little while and it was in the end just over four months, I think, before I landed another job. It didn't quite end up being the sort of data science or anything like that I'd set out for. It's a bit of a halfway point because something I'd done during that time was picked up new skills in, in coding, sort of Python, SQL and all that good sounding stuff. That helped. It That gave me something to focus on. And that gave me something to progress through. And that gave me that boost to my mental health when perhaps I was feeling a bit down about have I made a terrible decision here. It was picking up these new skills really sort of made you go, okay, yeah, I can see where this is going. Mm. Um, what did you learn about yourself along the way then, now that you've come out of that period? I think I've learned more about the compromises I'm willing to make with work. I've reached a point now where... I don't think I'm necessarily ever going to love my job, but I think it's now finding something where I can trade off my time because I had no personal time during those last few months of the role I quit. I just was working all hours. So trading off the time versus something you really enjoy versus the money. And I guess the environment you put in, I got on quite well with the team where I quit. But I guess, yeah, it's that sort of realisation of this is it, Ben, you're an adult, you've got to work. <laughs> You're not necessarily going to find something that's perfect. And even if you found a role that was sort of ticked a lot of boxes at the end of the day, it is still just work. You're never necessarily going to... A lot of people do have a job that's a passion for them. And that's brilliant. But I think I sort of realised I'm far enough down a certain path that I can find something I enjoy, but I'm never going to find something necessarily work-wise that I, I truly love. You work doing. to live, not live to work. Yeah. So it's that compromise, I think, that I, I sort of learned. Let's reflect on your journey now before we move on. If you could go back and talk to that Ben who was quite shy in school or maybe introverted, who was struggling to balance all of his friendship groups and mm. all the all of the fingers he had pies <laughs> in, or maybe the Ben who was struggling to fit in in the Edinburgh team, or maybe the Ben who was burnt out and just couldn't take another week of working in that role, what would you say to him knowing what you do now? I think in all of those situations, there's always the need to focus on the bigger picture it's hard sometimes you get so bogged down in certain things when stuff is getting you down it's very easy to fixate on that and nothing else not look at the good things that you've got going on so it's a difficult one i think back to secondary school ben it would be possibly focus a bit more on on your friends that have helped you get here to where you are now as a person but you know realistically i think a lot of that was just being at school and the sort of age kids are then mm. i think the edinburgh team i might have actually told him to walk away a lot sooner than i did just to realize perhaps this wasn't something that was going to work out and say thank you very much but it's not for me just because i think that's best for everyone in that situation but also not to beat yourself too much up uh, about stuff i think the work one's an interesting one because i think the move i did i wouldn't repeat but it was possibly absolutely the right thing to just take a clean break from Interesting. If I got to that stage again, I think uh, this is also something I've learned. It's it's communicating a lot more with people, not keeping it all locked up inside. And that's, I think, again, a lesson that I could have given myself in secondary school or during that team in Edinburgh. But if I was to do it all perhaps again, I would have really, I think, pushed to, to move internally to a different role. 
and I think I would encourage myself to really have those deeper conversations with my manager and the people around me to sort of let them know how I'm feeling. Perhaps even I could have taken a month off work through stress or something. That could have been the difference. But I just instead of gone nuclear, you could have gone exactly, yeah, exactly. Defcon three instead of Defcon yeah. one or whatever it is. But I think what I realised is that that has to come a lot earlier. I think those steps have to be taken a lot earlier because. At the time, it seemed like the only option I had was the nuclear option, like you say. And that's because I let it spiral quite so far out of control. And I just wasn't focusing on anything positive at that time. It was all just this negative outlook. But yes, had I opened myself up, sort of reflected better on myself, perhaps at the time, to say... You could even take it further back. You could say, I don't think I'm enjoying this role anymore. I'm not particularly in a bad place with it. I'm, I'm still on top of things but I'm not perhaps enjoying the role anymore. It's perhaps a conversation with myself to have said, do more to then get out of that, go and do something different before this gets bad. <laughs> then I would say to myself, when things had got bad, you should have had the conversations with your manager and the people around you to really let them know how you're feeling and, and not to carry that burden by yourself. I think I did sort of start having conversations with my friends and people, but never before it was too late. So... Yeah, I think those are the, the real lessons I've sort of learned is to be a lot more open about these things, to, to address these things before it's got to such a point. And yeah, again, just remember to focus on the bigger picture and the positives as well as just the sort of dominating negative outlook you might have. Our final topic of conversation, Ben, and it's one I try and have with all of my special guests, which is a general natter and chat about mental health. Mm-hmm. So firstly... How is your mental health at the moment, mate? I'm pleased to say it's in a pretty good place, I think. You know, it's funny, really, because we recorded this such a long time ago that the work issues we discussed were so more, much more prominent mm. at the time. That's why we didn't do it then, because you said, let me give, it then, you said, give well, me some time to get ahead of it. To, yes, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, we're about a year on from when I had my notice in. And so while it's it's a while back and while it's less prominent in my mind, sort of the bad parts, it's a nice stage to look back and go, only a year ago, I'd got to the point where I just quit my job. So it's nice now to sort of be, yeah, in a space where I'm, I'm much more in control and on top of things. And yeah, I'm, I'm in a pretty good place all around generally, which is which is nice. You know, I'm sure that won't last forever and there, there will be hurdles. But yeah, it, I'm pleased to say it's in a good place at the minute. And if you felt comfortable saying, what mental health issues or conditions, if any, do you live with and how do they affect you in your day-to-day life? I think anxiety is always probably the biggest one for me. Social anxiety, workplace anxiety? In a lot of places, yeah, yeah. I think I don't necessarily have much social anxiety with with the people I'm comfortable with, but new people can present a challenge quite Mm -hmm. often still. I'm better now than I was, but yes, that anxiety around the social side and the workspace side as well. But I think the work side of things is always a fear of not being up to scratch, if you like. What age were you when you became self-aware of your mental health for the first time and you realised that the feelings you were having weren't physical and they were actually in your mind and a product of your mental health? Yeah, self-awareness is an interesting one. Um, (laughs) I think forming... At university, I would say, is is probably when you really start to face things head on a bit more. Or Um, at all. (laughs) Or at all, in fact. (laughs) In my case, yeah. Yeah, exactly. I I think that's such a different environment to what you've been used to. And it's, for me, 
and I'm sure yourself and others, a huge part of becoming the person you eventually mm-hmm. become. Um, the adult you become, really, because, you know, you go into it 18, 19, and you, you're not a kid really anymore, but equally... You still you, feel like one. You still yeah. feel a bit like one, and you come out the other side an entirely different person, I think, in my own experience anyway, really. And yeah, sort of opened up a lot more the, the mental side of things, like you mm. said. Can you tell me about the first conversation you had with someone about your mental health? So who was it with? What impact did it have? And did it feel like a big moment or a big burden or weight had been lifted off your shoulders? Or did it feel like something quite insignificant, easy and normal to do? Yeah, I think I tend to be quite a closed book a lot of the time. And that's something I want to work on, as sort of mentioned earlier. I think communication is important to address challenges with mental health. You know, any flare-ups I might have are now, thankfully, much better at having that conversation, I think. Because really... I don't think I had conversations like that while I was sort of becoming self-aware at uni. It was only, I guess, probably during the crisis I was having Mm. with my career because I'm self-aware by that point, but I've never really had big conversations with other people about quite how much I might be struggling. I might have sort of off the cuff, you know, mentioned that things aren't particularly in a good place. But yeah, it was only really during that that I started to open up a lot more i think like i said by that point it perhaps become too late and i perhaps wasn't having it with as as many people as i should have i was having it with my friends but wasn't taking that into the workplace necessarily but yeah i think through that and then bringing ourselves back to the sporting focus you know it'd be going off to play football still with friends during when work was hard and actually after football laying off steam to them and, and just saying this is how it is and conversations with yourself i think you've been a great enabler as well uh, thanks mate which i really appreciate you've enabled yourself well <laughs> <laughs> as i always say to a lot of people in more articulate words <laughs> and yes i think when i quit i had that conversation with my manager and i was actually honest with him i sort of said these are some of the things i've been really struggling with and he sort of said oh i never knew right and he said you know i, I know you've sort of been overworked for sure but i sort of never knew you were dealing with these sort of things and that i guess was one of the eye openers in terms of what if i had had that conversation a lot sooner Mm. but yeah i think really probably wasn't until last year year and a half that i've had proper conversations about it what triggers then do you have that affect your mental health so this could be things people might say to you it could be a sound it could be a social environment it could be a particular book or film or whatever piece of popular culture or have you not figured all of them out yet i think it's fair to say i haven't figured them all out yet, <laughs> a lot of guests say that <laughs> <laughs> that's why i give that option open yeah, to them but i'm certainly aware that new people but perhaps new people on a, a large scale is probably mm. more more accurate i still have times at work perhaps when i have to speak in front of a lot of people and i can do it but it's not necessarily something that i enjoy and something sure. that does sort of you know put me in a, a, bit, a bigger state of oh I'm, I'm nervous i'm mm. anxious but yeah i guess it is hard to say i haven't quite figured them all out yet but you know it is, it is that kind of stuff and then i think i still take things too hard sometimes mm-hmm. there's knocks to my confidence like i mentioned you know times in football or, or or times at work if something goes slightly wrong and these things happen and that's something i need to appreciate more but i can let little things knock me i think too much Conversely then, what tools and methods do you use in your own life to improve your mental health or help you feel better? Which ones have worked and which ones that you've tried but haven't? 
I think. Um, I hope you say gigs on this one because otherwise, that's most of our friendship down the path. <laughs> <laughs> no, well, I'll, I'll start with that. There we go. Gigs are great. Yeah. yeah, they are another place where it's great to get out to and escape because you're locked, often with you in a relatively small <laughs> environment. Don't say that as if that's a bad thing. <laughs> it's not a bad thing. It's not a bad thing. I'm you say just... it with such underlying menace, locked in a room with Freddy. <laughs> yeah, I don't per- uh, perhaps pick the, the right words. I was locked in a dungeon with Freddy listening to this band and there was one other person there. <laughs> Sometimes that has been the case, to be fair. <laughs> I think it's fair to say we tend to see a, a fairly mix of gigs, mm-hmm. but a lot of smaller scale ones. Mm-hmm. And whether you're in that small one or, or one of the large ones, the people are all there for one thing and that's to yeah. see the band and you get trapped into that and it's a great place to go out and escape, hear some loud music and enjoy it, let off some steam, you know? Mm-hmm. So yes, gigs are definitely one way. Cycling over here early, like I say, that was nice. Mm-hmm. Getting out, playing football with my friends, brilliant. I think communicating is, is one of the ways that I've now learned is a really good way of dealing with things. And one of the things I think I've learned that doesn't, work is trying to plow on it will all be okay mm-hmm. that only works for so long what is the best book or as i call it mental health bible you have read for your mental health now it can be mental health related but it doesn't have to be yeah um oh that's hard <laughs> i'm not sure i've got an answer for you on that one um, or a podcast or a film anything if it's not book it's... any piece of popular culture or literature or content which has helped your mental health by watching it, reading it, or listening to it? Mm, I guess uh, I read Homo Sapiens. Okay. That was interesting to learn a lot more about the human psyche and sometimes why people behave the way they do. And, you know, sometimes I can get a bit down thinking, what is wrong with the world, you know? And that sort of helps open up a bit more why people are as they are. People don't mean to be the pricks that they are sometimes, (laughs) I think, essentially. (laughs) I think, though... Music has always probably been more where I've found my escapes or perhaps not necessarily escapes, but... It can be escape. It is for me a lot of the time. But also... Channeling things or channeling emotions, yeah. It's it's silly, really, for example. One of the relationships I had at secondary school, or yeah, that broke up and found it hard. And then it's one of the probably not as good albums, but I love it as one of their best, the Arctic Monkeys. First one, second one, no, third four. one, number four. Was number that Suck four. It and See? Suck It and See, right. yeah. Which I think because that's a breakup album, it's not particularly on many people's list, I think, if they were to say their favourite Arctic Monkeys material. But for no, me, you can get a good gauge of a person by which Arctic Monkeys album that's their favourite. So. But I think for me, I probably have songs that are my favourites not on that album. Sure. But the album as a whole and the feelings it helped me evoke and go through my own breakup... For some reason, hearing someone else sing about it, it, just, you know, you might be feeling sad, it might be a sad song, but you put it on and listen to it, and sadness isn't necessarily the emotion that it elicits. It's, mm. um, it's a strange one, and it's mm. hard to quite put your finger on why, but... So yeah, like I say, realistically, it's perhaps a bit of a silly example. It's uh, No, it's not silly, mate. I think it's but, a good example. But, but yeah. I've got one final question, mate. What more do you think we have to do to ensure men from all backgrounds or walks of life feel comfortable and safe in opening up about their mental health issues or just their general mental health if they want to do it? Yeah, um, I still think mental health is criminally underfunded in this country. But then really, I think with men, the problem is the culture, this 
astigmatisms. The difficulty of opening up, as I am very guilty of myself. And so I think you're doing sterling work. Um, I always say this is not a question for someone to compliment me. This is always a question. Of for course, <laughs> of course. But Just putting it out there. Speaking from my own experience, I think you've been a help to myself. And I think that's something we can all do with our friends. We can all check in with them. Mm-hmm. Uh, nice plug. <laughs> it's not your first time. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, for men, it's that sort of... I think we are going in the right direction here. Mm-hmm. I think more men are... It's whether we're listened to now, isn't it? Yeah. I think that's the the bigger thing. We are now talking. It's yes. whether we're listened to. Well, that's it as well. Yeah. I think it's about respecting people's boundaries and what they're 100%. With. Yeah. Really important point. And, and perhaps taking gentle steps at first. Building up and trust. That's what yes. we need as men, don't we? Exactly. Because there is a lot of toxic masculinity out there still. There is this perception that talking about how you're feeling is, is not a good thing and breaking down those barriers slowly and like you say building the trust i think is very important and i think we can all be there as friends and family and even strangers sometimes yeah. to, you know colleagues whatever where appropriate have those conversations yeah and i think it's a fear of being judged by men and it's also fear of being judged by mm. women you know you can have a fear of well, being yeah. judged by your friends whether that's irrational or rational but then you can also have a fear of oh, if i open up to this girl i'm seeing or even a girlfriend mm. will they become turned off or lose interest in me opening up and showing those emotions. So it's both sides of the coin, I think. Of course. Yeah. And it's, I guess, one other thing that I found perhaps a bit a tangent, but I worried at times that I was overburdening my own girlfriend, mm. wonderful Natalie, with this because... Good plug. She'll enjoy this bit. Yes. But, <laughs> but, you know, she was my outlet. You know, it was just us in that flat for mm. a long time in, in the lockdowns when I was at my darkest. And she was the only one for a while I was letting off steam to and I'm lucky to have the sport network I do. And is it about building that out now and sort of being able to release off steam I to little so, bits and, and pieces to other people? Taking my own experience and yeah trying to help other people open up a bit more perhaps as well and I found myself having better conversations with friends back home and stuff as a result actually you know it might take a few beers but <laughs> we always get does there. we get there and uh Hasn't changed with my mates, and they've all come on the podcast. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. <laughs> In fact, all of them have now, so. Yeah. Well, on that note, Ben Bloomfield, thank you so much for coming on Mind on the Game, mate. We got there in the end. Freddie Cocker, thank you for having me. It was really good fun, actually. It was a nice chat, isn't it? Well, I think that's all we've got time for on this episode of Mind on the Game. I want to say a big thanks to my boy Ben for being my special guest on this episode and for telling me how he keeps his mind on the game. As always, thank you to all the vendors who've tuned in. Remember, if you've liked what you've heard, I'll sign us off by saying, please give this a share on social media, tell your friends, tell your work colleagues about it. If you're feeling generous, write us a review and give us a five-star rating on Apple Podcasts. If you want to support us even further, please consider supporting our Patreon. That's at www.patreon.com slash eventshelpuk or you can make one-off donation in our GoFundMe. Stay tuned for the next episode of Mind on the Game. And remember, it's always okay.